Okay. <laughs> this show has explicit language and mature themes. There's a high probability that John will play that lick for us. <laughs> Welcome to Dexplanations. I'm Dexter Sorensen. I looked some stuff up on Wikipedia, and I'm going to explain it to my friend David Gerondale. David, what's up? Not too much. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good. I missed you. Yeah. Uh, we don't work together anymore. <clears throat> I have a different and job, and so now we don't see each other every day. And we then last to. week was Thanksgiving, so we... We didn't record. Spent a week apart, and my heart pined for <laughs> you. It feels like a long time between recordings when we just take one week off. It really does, yeah. Um, but I do have an episode today. Cool. What are we going to learn about in this episode? We're going to be talking about the double slit experiment. Ooh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. This stuff kind of blows my mind. It does. Yeah. It's I fucking weird. I had to watch so many videos and read a lot before I even understood why it was kind of mind blowing. Like for a while I was just like, oh, what does this even mean? Yeah. I actually knew a lot about it, but I didn't actually understand what experiments they did and the variations of it. And, like, what it actually implicates. But, yeah, let's get into it. It's actually, let's say it's about uh, how particles, like photons and atoms, behave as waves and particles. As waves and particles, yeah, both. And, yeah, they have, like, you can describe them in both ways and be equally correct. Depending on the situation. Depending on the situation. Yeah, sometimes they behave like particles, other times like waves, very much like waves. So before the 1800s... Scientists mostly agreed that Sir Isaac Newton was right about how light propagates, and he had what's called the corpuscular theory of light, which says that light is composed of tiny specific particles that have kinetic energy and a finite speed. Okay. Um, There were a few unexplainable things, even in that time, that if the corpuscular theory were actually true, uh, like had been proven wrong. Like, the fact that two crossing beams of light had been shown not to crash into one another. Okay, yeah. And yeah, like obviously that has change. some problems. Mm. And uh, diffraction couldn't, can't be explained with the corpuscular, the corpuscular theory. theory. Okay. Um, so, in the really, really early 1800s, like, I think he did his experiment in 1806, the scientist Thomas Young came up with an experiment that showed that light can also be seen to propagate as a wave. And here's what he did. This is the OG double slit experiment. He directed light onto an opaque screen. Actually, like he did something different than this, but we're just going to call it the OG experiment. Okay. Because um, <laughs> this is how you do it now. He directed light onto an opaque screen with two slits. Right. And behind that screen, there's another screen. And the light projected from the two slits is observed on that screen. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, if light behaves as a particle, you should expect to see two distinct bands of light. Right, which makes sense. Like, if you have particles going through each of the two slits on the other opaque screen behind it, you should see distinctly two slits where the light is passing through. Yeah, a lot of people use, like, a softball or a bullet analogy. Um, Like, Feynman used a bullet analogy. Like, if you throw 
softballs at the two slits and just like randomly across where the two slits are, then yeah, you should expect to see two bands yeah. where they end up on the second screen. But that's not what happened at all. Nope. Yeah, actually projected on the second screen was an array of dots of light. In the the brightest dot was in the middle and going out from there they get fainter mostly. Right, yeah. And so it could be observed that these that it almost like waves they were interfering exactly. both it's, with positive interference and negative interference. Exactly. It's called an interference pattern okay. is what was observed. And apparently Young uh, understood what it was immediately. Wow. Okay, that's, at that's it. pretty intuitive. Yeah. And uh, so what happens is when waves travel, when waves travel tr- through the two slits, the waves that come out of the slits interact with each other. And where wavelengths are in sync, they amplify. Right. Like you can imagine if this same experiment were done with water and you had like a wave machine Mm -hmm. on one side and then two slits where the water was able to go through on the other opaque screen where the water is hitting, if it could measure the waves. Yeah, it it was it acted just like that. Basically, there's a really good Veritasium video where he shows kind of what it would look like on a lake or something okay. like a standing body of water and he has like two balls on sticks that he like bobs at the same time oh makes and sense. you can see how the waves propagate like that interacting with each other and interfering where like the wave crests where they meet perfectly and make a bigger wave crest mm-hmm. they positively interfere with one another and so when there's a, a bigger trough, wave and when there's a trough that meets a that crest, meets a crest they cancel each they other cancel out. each other out so that's why the, there's that interference pattern is the same with the wave so yeah, what Thomas Young actually did is he had a more complicated version and he used a mirror to reflect reflect light through a small hole in paper and then the light was then split with a card of paper. Okay. And then he also and then he showed the interference pattern that way. Okay. So it's a little different than how we modernly do it, but that's like the base. It's the same idea. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, if if it had been just particles that card would have split them up. So you would have seen a definite. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You would have seen that they pattern only go on to the other two side. sides. Yeah. That would have just been like a, sp- a spray rather than this interference wave pattern that you see. Mm-hmm. And so later on in like around the 1920s, scientists figured out how to send individual photons at a time. I think Rutherford had a lot to do with this. Rutherford's one of my favorite physicists from really? like pre Einsteinian. I mean, he was he was a contemporary of Einstein, but he was like decades older, so he'd okay, been doing yeah. this kind of stuff before. Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about Rutherford. I mean, he was he was pretty instrumental. Him and his uh, his assistant Niels Bohr, who became yeah, like a huge Niels Bohr and Heisenberg actually had a lot of fights about um, what we'll t- we'll talk about. Niels later. Bohr started off as uh, his, Rutherford's understudy and then became like a Nobel winning physicist. Oh no shit! Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, in the 1920s, they figured out how to send individual photons at a time, and then they developed the second screen so that they could accurately detect where the photon lands on the screen. And uh, that was like a big deal, because after a while of sending specific individual photons and recording where they land on the, sa- on the screen, they saw the same interference pattern after a while. Right, with a single photon. With a single photon. So one photon can interfere with itself and can go through both slits simultaneously, basically. Yeah, it's like as if the photon interacts with itself. It decides the probability of landing at an an individual spot and goes to that spot. Yep. 
And that's the bizarre thing about quantum theory is it's not just it's not just our psychology deciding this. It is actually at a particle level we can prove that the probability. Yeah, that quantum particles actually have an indeterminate state and then decide their state upon a certain uh, at a certain moment depending on the 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 way you set up the experiment. Yeah, yeah. Um so like the particles they don't arrive on the screen in a predictable order. So knowing where all the previous particles appear on the screen, it doesn't really tell you anything about where a future particle will be detected. But when you see the sum, it's kind of like the law of large numbers, like we talked about in some other episode. You can see the pattern. There was a radioactive decay, I think. That we was. were talking about how you determine a half-life. Yeah, yeah, that's truth. So, But the th- cool thing is if there's a cancellation of waves at some point, that doesn't mean that the particle disappears. It will just appear somewhere else. Okay, okay. Yeah, so like each time a photon is sent, it does appear somewhere. But the fact that it doesn't appear like at a dark spot means that it will choose to, uh, finger quotes, right. appear on a bright spot or a place where it's more pro- has more probability, probability to land. And that's the weird thing about quantum theory is that like when you say choose, that is one of the most accurate ways our language can describe it. It's not just a phenomenon of observing it and your psychology affecting your observations. The particle really is indeterminate until you run the experiment. Mm -hmm. And then it almost, quote unquote, chooses where it's going to land based on a probability. Mm -hmm. And uh, the same interference pattern, like the wave-like pattern, can be seen when shooting much bigger things at the screen like atoms, electrons, and even some molecules. Okay. Like what's called buckyballs have been shown oh, to. Oh, yeah, which are tiny like been, carbon carbon molecules. Like, yeah, that look like a like a, like a round structure. Yeah. Um, like almost like a volleyball or a soccer ball made out of carbon. Yeah, even those more macro structures have been shown to wow, okay. sh- have the same interference pattern. When this experiment is Which done. means that larger, like, collections of atoms still have quantum indeterminates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the next thing they did is they're like, okay, what happens if we look and see what slit the atom goes through? Like, if we have a, a detector and we just, like, look at one slit or both slits. Because if you look at one slit and then you look at the second screen you know which one it goes through if you're sending them individually. Okay. And uh, after you know which slit the particle goes through, it doesn't display the wave pattern anymore. It starts to display the the softball-like pattern. Which is what really blows my mind. It's as though the particle understands that it's being observed. That's the part that really gets me. Well, it's like somehow knowing which slit they went through actually causes them to act like they are. Yep. Yeah. Act like you expected them to act yeah. without the wave theory. And the reverse can also be said. Like not knowing which slit they go through makes them go through both and act as a wave. And this is this is Schrodinger's cat uh, experiment yeah, yeah. thought experiment uh, we're, to we're, a T. Let's not talk much about Schrodinger's cat. Okay, we're getting there. No, 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 not today. But this will be a follow up episode eventually. Oh, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, there's like, I just don't actually get how the a how the particle interacts with itself, 
B, how the particle knows where it's being affected. Like uh, Feynman actually said that the observation somehow affects it in order for it to in order for it to go do actually go that way. Um, but there's a couple interpretations interpretations actually and there's, and there's like heisenberg's a, uncertainty principle but that's different it's a little different that's different because that's that's the idea that like in order to observe certain things you have to interact with them and thus you've changed certain of their properties in observing them so like heisenberg's uncertainty principle that makes a lot more sense it's like if you try to observe an electron like let's say you want to determine one property of the electron you have to hit it with, say, photons. And in the process, you've observed one aspect of it, but you've changed other aspects. So you can't mm-hmm. understand everything about the electron because you've changed other things about it in the fact that you observed it. Like, That's not, different than quantum quantum like, uncertainty. And not that you can't, can't, like, right now observe it because of limitations of technology, but that it is literally impossible to yes. observe it without changing it. Yep. Um, so there, like I said, there are like plethora interpretations of what this means, but let's just talk about two interpretations of the double slit experiment. Okay. And these are actually just like interpretations of quantum, quantum theory as a whole. But there's, uh, the most popular one is the Copenhagen interpretation. This is a quote from Wikipedia. According to the Copenhagen interpretation, Physical systems generally do not have definite properties prior to being measured, and quantum mechanics can only predict the probabilities that measurements will produce certain results. The act of measurement affects the system, causing the set of probabilities probabilities to result to only one of the possible values immediately after the measurement. This feature is known as the wave function collapse. Right, exactly. The idea that, like, it... Every particle has a set of behaviors, and only once you observe it does it collapse down to one choice out of those set of behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Like, basically, before you measure where a particle or photon is, it is literally everywhere until the instant you measure it. Yes, and that's the important thing. Literally everywhere. Not just can be thought of as everywhere. No, it actually Actually is. is. Like physically is it's not just a product of our not understanding where it is it actually is everywhere yeah yeah and measuring it actually causes it to appear where you observe it yep if you didn't observe it it would have been everywhere but since you observed it it is there yep apart from just statistics uh which is one of the big arguments for the fact that we live in a virtual uh universe is like statistics like I won't get into that, but like statistics is one of the big arguments for why we live in a virtual universe and not a a real physical universe. And I don't really buy too much into that um, because statistics are just kind of, they can be interpreted so many different ways. But this is another argument for that. The idea that us as observers just have an impact on the physical universe around us simply by observing it. Yeah, yeah. Or like, uh, yeah. Like or just having a second screen for it to land on. Yeah, yeah, like, which allows you to to in a sense observe it. Yeah, yeah, but then the detector which slit it goes through is actually more of like a mechanical humanistic observation. Right. I don't, and I'm not sure if there's a difference between those. 
But uh, so yeah, measuring it causes the collapse in the wave function. And Einstein actually hated the Copenhagen interpretation. Yeah, I think he was quoted as saying God doesn't uh, doesn't roll dice. Yeah, God doesn't play dice with the universe. Yeah, um, yeah, and it was like a a much longer quote. And so it's like a bridge yeah, to say that it's a yeah it's just a tiny snippet. And then, but the but what's interesting about that too? Just well, I think it was Bohr. I think Bohr told him after that because he said that in a letter to Bohr, as far as I, I'm pretty sure. And Bohr told him, Einstein, stop telling God what to do. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, what I love about that is it actually demonstrates something that a lot of uh, people don't seem to understand that like uh, a thorough understanding of physics does not equate to atheism at all. Like, they're not connected. Oh, and what I mean by that is, like, a lot of the most renowned physicists who gave us our current quantum theory were definitely deists. Well, yeah, They yeah. absolutely like, believed in a creator in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like, Einstein wasn't an, athe- wasn't an atheist. He was but, a deist. Yeah. The idea that he believed in a... I mean, he was, he was nominationally Jewish, but like... Like he, a lot his of the founding act- fathers, too. Yeah, most of the founding fathers were deists, uh, not atheists. They believed in a basically unknowable creator. Not mm. like, you know, a, a, a man-like figure who sits up in the clouds and determines things on a daily basis and who you can pray to to, to get certain results. But like, they definitely believed in a... Creator. A creator. I've always heard it like a clock... Like a watchmaker... Like a person who sets up the watch in the, so that it will tick in a certain way and then just steps away from it. Right. Yep. Um, he also, Einstein also said, does the moon cease to exist when I look at it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's the, there's the Schrodinger's cat. But like I said, we're not going to get into that. Uh, it's so <laughs> good though. I know. For a long time it bugged me because I, I didn't actually understand it exactly. Okay, so the other interpretation of the double slit experiment and quantum mechanics that we're going to be talking about is the many worlds interpretation. Yep. And uh, that denies that the wave function collapses at all. And it instead says that all possible past and future outcomes actually do happen in separate realities. A lot of people confuse many worlds with the multiverse, which is a totally different thing. How, and how is it different? So it's it's like the, it, the multiverse actually explains the weak anthropic principle, which is the idea that like, so we are here to ask these questions and the experiment of the universe was set up in such a way that is conducive to human life. And so the, the strong anthropic principle says that like, um, the universe was set up for human in level intelligence to exist. Oh my God. And then the weak anthropic principle says that we simply believe that because we happen to exist in a universe that allows for our existence. So I like, like you the can, weak, I like the weak one. Much oh better. yeah. The weak anthropic principle is, is largely believed in by most quantum physicists uh, today. And it's the idea that like, uh, if you tweak any one of the universal constants, not Einstein's universal constant, but like, like let's say you tweak the value of the weak, weak force or the strong force or gravity, and you could just have no stars, you could have no planets, you could yeah. have no interacting particles whatsoever. You would just have this weird soup that is not conducive to human-like intelligence at all. And so the weak anthropic principle says, like, we're, we exist in a finite number of possible universes and so we're here to question okay, so how it was set up 
So the weak anthropic principle and the multiverse theory still is a finite is a finite thing and the many worlds could be infinite. The the many worlds so the, it's not necessarily infinite the many worlds interpretation but like it could easily be infinite. Right. The many worlds interpretation is like what um what people like to talk about um Oh, what's his name? The guy who demoted Pluto, uh, Tyson. Oh, Neil, Neil deGrasse, deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. He likes to talk about the many worlds all yeah. the time. He does not talk about the multiverse that much, though. I think in one one thing, he does distinguish between the two of them and let you know that they're different, totally different things. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean that's pretty much all I have today on the double slit experiment. Oh, then we should really just like briefly at least touch on Schrodinger's. It- Absolutely not. And how it involves this. We have more we want to talk about, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay. I actually want to make notes about that. Okay. Um, But you got anything else besides Schrodinger's cat you want to talk about? Um... I think... Okay. One... I just want to point out, like, how unintuitive a lot of this stuff is. Oh, yeah. So before, like, Newtonian physics, a lot of it just makes sense on an intuitive level to humans. Like, it's very mechanical. Particles have a set of behaviors, and they just always, like, this particle acts this way. If you run the experiment this way, it Mm -hmm. will always behave that way. If you set your experiment to be precise enough, you will get the same precise result. Um, and that's just but not that's just not how it is. Level. And a lot of these physicists really had, I mean, I, we need to give them credit for wrapping their heads around. And this is around the same time that like cars are being in- invented. So this is like a long time ago in terms of like technological inva- advancement. And these physicists were really wrapping their heads around the idea that the universe was not deterministic. You know, uh, and you and I have argued about whether there's free will because we live in a deterministic universe, but we only live in a deterministic universe to a certain extent. And I'm usually yeah. the one who argues that yeah, we true. don't have free will because the universe is deterministic. And some and physicists I'm just like I don't give a fuck, even if it's not, even if it is determined, it. Nah, it's not. It's not. And and, and the fact like, is that like physicists would agree with you these days that um and and some people even suppose that maybe some part of consciousness exists on a quantum level, mm. um, which I'm a little bit skeptical about just because of the macro scale of the brain. But we like we talked about even like, buckyballs, which are a macroscopic like they have, molecule. They have like a atomic have quantum weight, effect. Atomic weight of like ten thousand. Yeah, exactly, which is really large. Yeah. Um and I mean, when you're talking about like a lot of, you know, individual atoms have atomic, like, uh, I think it is hydrogen has an atomic weight of like 1.06 or something like that. Yeah. Buckyballs like are that. huge. Exactly. And so, and they experience quantum strangeness, which is what is also uh, often referred mm. to these days. Quantum strangeness. The idea that like our universe is not deterministic. In fact, they know now that we don't even have the same number of starting particles that the universe started with. Particles just like oh. pop into existence and out of existence with total randomness. We actually gain new particles since the creation of our universe, since the Big Bang and all of its settling, or I mean, now it's inflation theory, but yeah. it's still Big Bang is like still fairly relevant. Like since then, we have acquired and lost particles with no explanation of where they went. And and when I say this actually breaks like on a small scale, the conservation of mass. Yeah. 
Like yeah. particles just pop into existence and out of existence without any sort of measurable consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's weird. It's fucking weird. And we weird. need to take our hats off to the physicists who are like, able to wrap their heads around oh, yeah, how weird it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. What I was going to say is, uh, Feynman actually predicted, uh, the results of detecting which slit it went through. He really? detected, yeah, he predicted that if you determine which slit it goes through, that you'll see the, the, non-interference pattern and see that's so unintuitive badass oh he yeah he is he's up there i mean einstein gets a ton of credit for the special in general uh like one of the the lectures that he gave on it and it was just so good it's an hour long but it's so worth it oh yeah yeah his he and he talks in such a way as like he can really teach layman a lot Mm. about the quantum nature of the universe. He's not just like a really heady guy, even though he understands this stuff on a mathematical principle, he can really relate these concepts to a layperson. It's the fact that he understands it so thoroughly that he can explain it so, so vibrantly. Yeah. Yeah. He, he can give you, um, he can give you like real world metaphors that make complete sense and are also still relatively applicable, like still make sense on a physical level. Honestly, I pine for the era where Feynman and Carl Sagan were a thing. Yep. Because you know, I like CP snow was doing some great stuff at the time too. And he only died mm, maybe like 10 years ago. Okay. Like I, I just like don't think that Neil deGrasse Tyson is as good of a science explainer than those two. No, like he, I, I respect him to a degree, but like he just doesn't add up, and Bill Nye doesn't add up. No, no, like, not at all. Like the the best science explainer I know of are YouTube YouTubers, right? Yeah, now. like the the guy like, who does Veritasium. What's his name? Uh. I don't know. I think he's way, way better he's at relating these concepts to lay people the, than Veritasium, Michael from Vsauce, yep. and Joe Scott. Joe Scott's great. Like, We've talked about him a little bit. I really like his videos. And I found out you must have watched one of his videos because I watched one of his videos after we did the fart episode and found out that uh, he does a little bit about the fartiste. Did oh, you watch d- that video? I think I did, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I think I did. Yeah, he's really great. I like him, too, because he does um, videos about just, like, random weird stuff, like the Fartiste, and he does a lot of videos about, um, like, astrophysics, um, rocket science, and he's just, like, a down-home boy from Texas. (laughs) That's that's Uh, Joe Scott. Yeah, he's just, like, a nerdy layperson. Yeah, so uh, that's all I got, though, that we're going to get into. Okay. (laughs) So that's it for this episode. The Explanations, it's recorded at Rabbit Pen Studios in Eugene, Oregon. It's produced, edited, and provided them sweet licks by Jonathan Cunningham. If you want to support this show, go to patreon.com slash Dexplanations or leave a review on iTunes. I want to thank my current patrons, Alexis, Ben, Susan, Kevin, Linda, Simone, Derek, and Nick. Linda actually got a hold of me and told me that penguins' feathers are an example of something which is sorbent. Because remember we talked about that in the first distinctions episode, the difference between absorbent and adsorbent. Like absorbent actually takes it into the body of the thing, and okay. absor- adsorbent keeps it on the surface. 
Um, so sorbent is something that does both. Wait, so what feathers? Penguin feathers. Oh, penguin feathers. I yeah. thought you said pangolin. I was like, I'm pretty sure they're mammals. Because <laughs> pangolin is one of these rabbits in here. Yeah, yeah. And also they're the most uh, highly poached and trafficked animals in the world. If you yeah. don't know what a pangolin is, look them up. go they look, look so it up. Cool. Because it's important to know what a pangolin is because they might not be around for that much longer. And they're one of the oldest mammals on the planet. Oh, Linda also reminded me that lighting a fart on fire is called blue darting. Really? Blue darting? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I knew that, but... I'd never even heard that. So anyway, thanks, Linda. And uh, likely we got a bunch of things wrong. If you want to tell me about it or if you wanted to clarify something we went over, hit me up at DexplanationsPodcast at gmail.com, tweet me at Dexplanations, or comment on the Instagram. Or we got a subreddit, too. I'll bring it up in a later episode or do a new episode about it. You are the only thing that makes this show grow, so please tell someone to subscribe and just talk the show up a lot. We're so good. (laughs) Oh, and as for you, you are beautiful in every single way. Wait, when are you are you gonna tell people that we're going to the PodCon? Oh point? yeah, yeah. We're going to a podcon a podcast convention in Seattle on It's uh, hosted by Hank and John Green, the Vlog Brothers. Yeah, and tons of cool people will be there. I'm gonna try to make some beer coasters to give away. And uh yeah, me, David, and Jonathan, we're all going. Yep, we're gonna have our own table there. We got a table. Talk up the podcast, talk to other podcasters, yep. get some, you know, tips and and all sorts of other stuff. It's be and badass. also just, uh, you know, uh, network. I'm, I'm extremely excited about it. It's going to be great. It's up in Seattle. Yeah, up in Seattle in like January 19th yep. or something. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So see us there or be square. <laughs> <laughs>